Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be looking at the most recent bestseller list. And we'll be talking about Oxford in books. Hello, I'm, uh, I'm Heather. And I'm Julian. And you're listening to Turning Pages. Hello there. Hello there indeed. Every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. So thank you for joining us. As always, we've got a packed show in store for you. And once again, and we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. Yes. And before we do that, don't forget, we do really want to hear from you. Um, so please uh, drop me a line um, at julian at river.radio. If you have any uh, tidbits you'd like to share with us or you've just discovered a new author or a new title, do send us, a, uh, send us an email and we'll share your information and thoughts on another programme. Absolutely. So now, Heather, let's start with a quick roundup of what book stories we found in the press recently. Well, I saw a lovely article in the uh, in the Times newspaper about Charlotte Bronte's sensual side. Oh, I say. I know. It's a new exhibition of clothing on at the Bronte Parsonage Museum in Haworth and suggests that the novelist was more fashion conscious than previously thought. Mm. So on display is this bright pink wrapper, it's called, which would have been worn around the house, a bit like a house coat with a matching mm. cape. Did your mum used to wear a house coat? Yes, she did, yes. Do you think people wear them anymore, do they? No, no. I think that's you know, gone out of, out of fashion. Um, I suppose everybody has some um, cleaners coming in, I suppose. Yes, probably. <laughs> anyway, the curator of the exhibition, Dr Eleanor Houghton, describes this uh, house coat as hideous, pink, very bright and huge, voluminous. And it's the opposite of anything you'd ever associate with Charlotte Bronte. And also on display is something called an ugly bonnet, which was purchased on a visit to London and seemingly was the height of fashion. So it was worn on the top of your bonnet, your existing bonnet, and then Mm. pulled down, seemingly to prevent the sun catching the wearer's face. Oh. And and she's also been given, or Charlotte Bronte had been given, a pair of beaded moccasins from America, which was a gift from her publisher in New York. And that's a particularly exciting find, as the book Shirley has lots of references to mohawks, which is where these mo- mo- moccasins are from. So um, all of these items were sort of hold away uh, from the world in the middle of West Yorkshire. But part of the idea of the museum is to show that she knew what was happening out there um, and she was very conscious of the world surrounding her. Uh, Anyway, the exhibition has 20 items of her clothing and accessories and runs at the Bronte Parsonage Museum until next January. Oh, so almost... um all, all the, for all the year, basically. For all so that's the year, great. yeah, so absolutely. Anybody, anybody on the, taking their holidays up uh, near Haworth, 
then they should really pop in. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah. Yes, because I always, I always got the impression that when seeing the parsonage, it was all grey and miserable, and their father seemed a very dour man, and you can just imagine just sitting there in grey all the time, but yes. obviously not. She was obviously very bright and lively Whenever clothing. I, whenever I think about Charlotte Bronte, I always think about that Victoria Wood sketch. Do you remember? She's a guide in the Charlotte Bronte parsonage. <laughs> I can't remember that one. I've got to It's really that funny. It's definitely, <laughs> definitely worth looking at. Anyway. I'll go and look for that one. <laughs> uh, I, I saw an interesting article um, uh, last week uh, in, in The Telegraph, and it was about Charles Dickens. Now, it appears that he wrote um, a, a modified shorthand, um, and he, 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 there was a particular, I've forgotten the, uh, the, the actual um, method it was, but he then embellished it, and and developed his own style, which was, which was quite indecipherable. So much so that Dickens used to call it the devil's handwriting. It was, it was that difficult. That sounds like my handwriting as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, without, yeah, without the benefit of doing it in shorthand. Exactly. Like mine as well. Now, um, there are only a small number of, of documents um, in his own hand that um, that are known of. But um, because of this, um, the, the, the script was never deciphered before. Mm-hmm. But there was a group of um, university um, um, academics and amateur code breakers who've been looking at trying to break this system that he used. Uh, and they have actually come up with a number of breakthroughs. But what I thought was amusing was a prize, a prize of £100 was offered to anybody who could crack it. But I think probably for these um, amateurs, certainly it would have been the game was worth it. Yes. Now, they've actually managed to decipher about 60 to 70% uh, of, of um, the script. And it's enough to actually work out that it's a trans, they've translated the letter which highlights an angry spat that Dickens had with the Times newspaper um, in about 1859. And um, as we know, uh, Charles Dickens wrote many of his novels in monthly installments and, and they would appear in a literary magazine. And it, it, it appears he fell out with the publisher of the literary magazine and, and Dickens decided he was going to start his own magazine without any association, but wanted to take all his, his readers um, with him from the previous magazine. So he wanted to place an advertisement in the Times. However, the clerk, a clerk at the Times, um, fearing re- uh, legal repercussions, rejected his submission much to Dickens' fury, and this is what this letter is all about. It's him ranting um, <laughs> against the Times for refusing to place his ad. I mean, that's a great story, but don't you think you spent all this time and effort trying to decipher his writing yes. and then stood and said this sort of literary ma- masterpiece? Yeah. You've actually got a spat with the, the yeah. newspaper yes. about an advert. Yeah, it's, it's a grumpy exchange of, uh, yeah, about an advert and, and a not a, not a uh, long-lost novel or something exactly. that everybody was expecting. <laughs> It's a bit of a come down, isn't it? <laughs> I just suppose it's a little bit better than turning out to be his grocery list. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. So you might think when I say what's uh, Belgium's most famous fictitious son that Poirot is going to be up there. But actually, Belgium has just now changed their passport design mm-hmm. and Tintin has been crowned. Ah. Um, the most one of the most important uh, Belgian figures because he's now going to be included. The, his cartoon character is now going to be included on all Belgian passports. Oh. So also, it's going to be Tintin, his moon rocket, and Captain Haddock will mm. all be used together with other characters such as the Smurfs. 
Uh, anyway, Gosh. Belgium authorities have confirmed, thank goodness, that enhanced security elements have also been added to the passports, not just cartoons. Right. So it's not. It's, 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 it's not. A, it's, it's not a, a Belgian version of Vino. Then it is no. actually. A, <laughs> well, that's good. I'm pleased to hear it. <laughs> Now, um, we we all know of Anthony uh, Horowitz, um, who is a best-selling author and screenwriter. Um, he has just adapted um, uh, one of his own books, uh, which is Magpie Murders, and he's adapted it for um, a television series, which is currently being shown on BritBox. Mm-hmm. Now, previously, um, Anthony Horowitz had written in the style of Ian Fleming uh, when he wrote um, The uh, the Trigger Mortis, and he's also taken on and um, Arthur Conan uh, Doyle style with the House of Silk. Um, and, and so this one, the, the uh, Magpie Murders, is a bit of a pastiche on Agatha Christie. Uh, and it's, it really is a great, it's a fabulous conceit. Um, uh, and it, it, it's hard. Um, and it's perfect for any of the book lovers. Um, the crime is the death of a wealthy author who's got rich from churning out Agatha Christie light novels. Um, and the, the main character is, is a, a private detective called Atticus Pund. And it's set in the 1930s. And, um, and Pund uh, seemingly cracks impossible cases in the shires and also in the cities and everywhere. And this time he um, has one chapter to go before completing his latest uh, book, The Magpie Murders. This is the author. When he's found dead and it's his uh, editor at the publishing house that becomes an accidental sleuth. Now, of course, naturally, the answer lies within the pages of the book. Um, and, and, and But the novel is, it, it's really extraordinary because the novel itself is part of the book. Um, so it, 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 it's a book within a book within a book almost. Um, and it's absolutely fantastic read. And you really, really should uh, get a copy and read it. But it's also very good on the television too. So how do they do the book within the book on the television or haven't they done that bit yet? Well, they have because it 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 starts almost immediately because um, the 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 house that the author lives in is then the house where the novel uh, murder right. is committed. Right. So you keep going back and forth, and then the policeman that plays. Um, uh, in in the novel is the real policeman oh, in right. mob, and it really Excellent. is clever. And Atticus Punt appears to um, to uh, the editor in the rearview mirror of a car, so she has these visions of him coming from the past, and it really is it's 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 really good. It really is very clever. I've got to say, the book's brilliant though. Yeah, 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 definitely. You know, you were saying before that it's a shame that when Charles Dickens uh, it wasn't his shopping list or something that was yes. found. Well, there's a brilliant story over the weekend about an archaeological discovery in Egypt, which contained 18,000 ancient notebooks, including shopping lists, which I think <laughs> is brilliant. <laughs> and it's from the time of Ptolemy the Twelfth, who was the father of Cleopatra. So we're talking first century BC, Gosh. and uh, it's day to day life, so shopping lists, trade records, and schoolwork. And it appears that uh, what they found is they found lists of months and numbers and grammar exercises and maths problems. But even more exciting, which I I think so anyway is that they've a whole series of repetitive writing, which they're assuming was used as punishment. Um, so people, little Egyptian boys and girls being given uh, lines. Given lines, all oh, right. And that reminded me to remember when Nick 
Hornby was doing a talk at the Customer Festival Autumn Programme. And uh, Nick Hornby, of course, fabulously um, important. He's an Oscar winner, best-selling author. And he came to Cookham back, um, well, we played the interview in January, actually, for New mm. Year. Yes, we did. Yeah. And anyway, he he remembers his school lines. And I just thought I'd play that again now. Just so right. And we had, he was a lovely guy, an English teacher uh, called Mr. Stanley, who was pretty scary. And um, he used to set us lines if we'd talked or if we'd forgotten things. And the talking line was, my natural verbosity is in direct antithesis to the effective consummation of my academic career. So if you talked in class, you'd say, you, 25 natural verbosities, and that's what you'd have to bring in the next day. And you've remembered it, so you <laughs> well, wanted I'm to write them a lot. so many times. <laughs> and if you forgot something, it was, failure to bring to English classes the necessary materials for working will result in my rewriting these lines a considerable number of times in order that my memory be refreshed. He sounds amazing. So poor Nick Hornby, obviously, there. As all those Egyptian school children yes. writing out lines ad finitum. Well, there we are. His teachers quite right. Those lines are seared on Nick Hornby's memory. They are. And, of course, he went to Maidenhead uh, Grammar School, which yes, is now, yeah. Now, there's a warning for anybody going to Maidenhead Grammar School. <laughs> and finally, uh, in our, our newsy bits, we, we've got an item on the Paston Letters, which are a fabulous collection, a medieval collection of correspondence between the Paston family, who were landed gentry living in Norfolk, uh, and, and also the letters with um, those who were connected with them. Uh, and there's a new book called The Anatomy of a Nation, A History of British Identity in 50 Documents. Quite a snappy title, as you can imagine. And that's written by Dominic Selwood, uh, and includes a love letter, which is believed to be the first ever Valentine card. Well, in fact, you could call it a Valentine letter. Um, uh, so, um, so all of those who believe that Valentine's Day is just a modern ploy to sell cards and roses and chocolates, uh, you should know that in February 1477, Marjorie wrote to her young lover, my right well-beloved Valentine, I am not in good health of body or of heart, nor shall I till I hear from you. Oh, Yeah, isn't that sweet? She's anyway, yeah. Uh, I, I understand that uh, the dad wasn't impressed with the uh, her young lover. Yeah, oh, oh, there we are. So, so it's same all over, isn't it? Even in, even in the fourteen hundreds, dad didn't approve. Yeah. Probably said he was a layabout or something like that. Probably you know? was. <laughs> yes. Well, you're listening to Turning Pages, and coming up, we'll be exploring books with an association um, to Oxford. But first, uh, let's take a look at our highlights from this week yes. um, and the bestseller list. Absolutely. So we're using the Sunday Times bestselling list, which is the oldest and one of the most influential book sales charts in the UK. And the listings are based on data collected by Nielsen Bookscan. And Nielsen Bookscan, ah, yes. what they do is they connect with lots of bookshops all over the country and they find out from them every week how many books they've sold of every title and they collate that to work out the estimated book sales um, across the land. Right. So what yes. has caught your eye generally? Well, there's one one book that I think stands out from the general uh, pack of hardbacks, um, that, uh, which is usually the celebrity memoirs and self-help books. But this is Thomas Halliday's 
other lands. It's a paleobiology. And it isn't usually a guaranteed bestseller. Um, I think probably you're trying to get the get the name of it out is, is, is another reason. But this journey through our prehistoric Earth has generated really a big appeal. Um, and it's already been suggested as becoming a book of the year. And it's beautifully written and it uh, and the telling transports us to 16 rich fossil sites around the world. And it really is a bit like um, a natural history um, travelogue, if you like. It sounds great, actually. Mm. Yeah, it's doing, it's doing really well. So I've spotted one of my favourite uh, fictional authors, actually, at the moment, is, is up there in the, in the top ten list. And it's Ellie Griffiths. And her latest book is The Locked Room, published by Quirkers. Now, um, the sort of protagonist is Ruth Galloway, who's an archaeologist, which is sort of why why we like her. And she sort of has this on-off relationship with her lover, DCI Nelson. And they're always getting involved and they're living up towards Norfolk. And there's lots of friendly druids and um, sort of mist coming in from the from the ocean. It's always really great. And this one is a series of apparent suicides of older women, which look suspicious. And the police investigation, though, is hampered by the arrival of COVID-19 and lockdown. So obviously, it's a very uh, contemporary novel. Yes. And lockdown provides this sort of opportunity for Griffiths to bring fresh drama into her character's lives. So that sounds really good. Mm, it does. Mm, pardon me. <clears throat> now, the fiction paperback, Joyce, is a, 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 one which I think is a, is a great title, and, and, and it has been discussed before, and that's The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which was written by Taylor Jenkins Reid, and, and it's published by Simon Schuster. Now, it was reviewed here a couple of weeks ago by Tilly um, on her section, and it is a great book about an ageing Hollywood icon who is um, sitting back and reflecting on her past life and on her relentless rise to the top in the Hollywood world. And I've got to say, it was recommended here on Turning Pages before it, it got to the top ten list. It is and very true. And have you noticed, though, Heather, yes. I, I find this very interesting, that after we've mentioned some some of our books, um, then, yes, the following day or the next week, up it pops in some sort of uh, either online as it's been... Well, I think we just set the pace. I think we, we set the pace. Set the trend. Mm-hmm. So my general paperback choice is Breath by James Nestor, published by Penguin Life. And I've got to say, we used to have a, a, a sports massage girl who did mm. all these courses on breathing. And she has drummed into me and my husband the importance of breathing. And when a little baby is born, they know how to do it naturally, of course. Mm. Little babies breathe perfectly. But by the time you're our age, or in fact you know, teenager, we've learned how not to breathe properly for some, for some reason. But yeah. as we grow older, it becomes more and more important to, uh, to breathe. So buy this book, Breath by James Nestor, and you'll never breathe the same again. Gosh, very interesting. Um, well, in the general hardback category, um, I've 
picked up this one, which is What I Wish People Knew About Dementia. And it's been written by Wendy Mitchell and it's published by Bloomsbury. Now, currently, a staggering 50 million people worldwide live with dementia. And it's an, an estimated that that's going to treble in, a, in about 30 years' time. Wow. So probably um, it's something that, you know, you might want to consider to, to, and rush out to buy this book. Now, Wendy Mitchell... Um, herself wrote the uh, best-selling memoir, Somebody I Used to Be, in 2018, when she was first diagnosed with dementia, when she was only 58. And she now, yeah, she was quite young. And she's now in her mid-60s, and she's written this book to provide an overview of what the illness is like. And there's some very interesting things in here, which I didn't even think. Um, Her aim is to share what, she's learned so far about it and the hope that it will help others um, or those uh, those who've got it or those who are actually having to look after people with, with dementia. Mm. Because there's some very interesting things which, um, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you know, um, the main principle is forgetting things. Um, well, that apparently plays only a minor role um, in living with dementia. Um, because the other thing which is really interesting and, 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 and very sad is that people with dementia have difficulty seeing black. So a dark table will look like a sinkhole in a room to them, mm. um, which could obviously would be very alarming. And, and, and the challenge of looking for glasses or keys is because dementia sufferers are no longer able to, to picture what it looks like what they what what they're looking for looks like it's rather sad yeah, but a I very interesting and inspiring an inspiring book in that respect because it's a really it it, it it's i think it helped take the fright out of it for people you know so the, so it's guiding this is these are the things that will happen and yeah. how you can manage it and also you become less annoyed with some you know you, you know what yes. it's like you lose your glasses and they're yes. there in front of you but if you sort of get bothered by that mm. at least you mm. feel that if yes. you understand why they can't see that properly it's just because they don't recognize that as their glasses then that just makes help for the carer as well exactly i think it's exactly. a really it's a really brilliant book yeah. so uh wendy mitchell has dementia and so she's written it co-written it with her with a carer um, right. mm-hmm. and they work they work together yes. to do it but it's it's her experiences i think it's, it's a brilliant book mm. one for us all Right, so moving on, for centuries, Oxford has been a great source of inspiration for writers looking to flex their creativity. Not only has its iconic university produced some of the world's greatest writers, including people like C.S. Lewis, Oscar Wilde and J.R.R. Tolkien, but of course its picturesque surroundings are a popular setting for a whole range of different novels. In fact, I think there are a few cities in the UK which have appeared in novels with quite such regularity. What do you Mm. reckon? I think that must yeah, be right. yes, yes, I think you're right. Yeah. So whether right. it be St Mary's Passage with its lamppost, which inspired the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, mm-hmm. or the tranquil Ifley Lock, which features in Three Men in a Boat, inspiration is found on every street corner. So the city of dreaming spires and its grand architecture makes for the perfect drop, of course, for historical fiction. And those quaint and cobblestone locations, I think, are just superb for crime and mystery novels. And how can we talk about Oxford without Morse? 
Indeed, how could you not? Yes. Um, and with all of the, uh, all about um, uh, uh, fantasy novels um, that have been inspired by the city, for example, Philip Pullman with his Dark Material series, uh, or as you've mentioned, Tolkien with Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis with The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, um, which you've mentioned above. Um, these were these authors were, were part of a group called the Inklings, which was an informal um, uh, literary group, and they based themselves, um, unlike the Algonquin Club, uh, um, uh, the Algonquin at the Eagle and Child Pub in Oxford, um, and they uh, they uh, the crime author Dorothy L. Sayers was also a guest um, to their group, which was which was great. But in in fact, I think she was one of very few females I should find on the list. So she was a quite uh, in rarefied company. Well, I suppose um, we're talking yeah. the 30s, aren't we? So. We are, yes. It would be 1930s. But there would have been, you know, an, an, a number of, of, of um, intelligent ladies attending the university at the time, some yeah. of them at least, and so on. But yes, but that was rather interesting. So, it's a, so the, there we are, the Eagle and Child Public House was yeah. where, they, where the Inklings met. Yes, you can do a little tour of the, the city. You can do a little, like an Inklings <laughs> tour. Oh, lovely. Yeah. yeah. Really good. And of course, hey, so I know that, obviously, because I'm studying at the moment at Indeed Oxford are, University. Yes, yes. So, I, I, Heather, I had an inkling you were here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't often tell jokes. Oh, no, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so, meanwhile, of course, the historic and renowned educational system has led to loads of novels being set at the university itself. And they're romanticising the experience of being mm. in a student. I think Bryce had revisited sort of fits into, uh, into that, doesn't mm. it? It does. It does. Um, now, um, I was going to say we've spoken, but in fact, Heather's spoken um, in the past to uh, best-selling author um, Cara Hunter, who lives in Oxford herself. And she sets her detective novels uh, in the city. And uh, her um, detective is uh, D.I. Adam Thorley. Um, now, Heather has had um, a, a conversation again with with uh, with Cara and uh it was to do with her, the recent publication of her new novel, The Whole Truth, uh, which became a Richard and Judy pick, which is great news. So um, Heather was asking Cara what Oxford brings to her books. And this is Heather chatting to Cara now. What is it about Oxford and crime? <laughs> Apart from the midsummer area, I don't know, an area that has more crime. <laughs> I know, I know. It's very, it's very funny because when I when I first wrote uh, Close to Home, the first one in the series, and, and I set it where I live because Close to Home was one of the one of the sort of ironies of the title. But it, it is a very interesting city from the point of view of sort of overlapping communities. So you've got the overlapping of, the, of town and gown, obviously, which happens elsewhere as well. But you've got quite a small city, really, geographically, but lots of different communities, uh, both geographically in terms of north, south, east, west, but the di- different sort of groups of people, people who've been here a very long time for generations, people who just come here as students or as a, a, a part-time professors and who will be leaving again or whatever. So there's a very interesting uh, dynamic of, of people which I think sets up lots of potential for stories uh, because of potential for tension because stories arise out of tension. But when I first did the book, I thought, oh, golly, I can't possibly set it in Oxford. Everyone's been Oxforded out. 
we had Morse and Lewis and Endeavour and I love them all. Um, but he said, I can't do that again. No one's going to want to read this. So I disguised it. I called it something else. And then <laughs> I took, we took the book to what became my, my editor at Penguin. And virtually the first thing she said to me was, this is Oxford, isn't it? So obviously my disguise was pretty rubbish, wasn't it? And I, I sort of looked rather shamefaced and she said, well, no, no, turn it back to Oxford immediately. <laughs> and I sort of know what she means because I think one of the reasons the um, the book sell very well around the world is that everybody knows Oxford. I don't have to describe it in the books. Everyone has a picture in their heads. But I do try very hard not to do the university thing, not to do the, you know, the, the dons in the quads, knifing each other, you know, wearing their gowns sort of thing. Partly because it has been done beautifully already, but, but it's just not that part of town that I'm particularly interested in. I mean, the whole truth is a slight exception because that does have a college context, but it almost had to really, if you're looking at that type of, sort of me too incident, you know, a university area is is obviously somewhere where that, that's going to be an interesting setting to yeah. put that type of story so it made no sense to try and make it up and put it somewhere else other than the university but I did very very deliberately not put it in one of the older colleges in the centre of town I put it in a former women's college again because that we're looking you know upside down in terms of assumptions so it was happening in a former women's college now headed up by a man so again all the all the opposites coming into play in terms of gender politics so that's why I why I did it this time but I, I usually try to avoid it try to look at the other bits of the town <laughs> I loved it in the first book when you actually make a, a nod to, to Morse and the, yes. and the car and the, and the crossword puzzles yes, I don't do bloody crosswords I know <laughs> I know, I think I mean, you have to have that sort of knowingness, really. If you're going to set a book in Oxford and it's a detective book, I mean, you talk about elephant in the room, so you might as well say, here's the elephant. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, that's quite fun. Because that was one of the first um, times we see Adam's sort of rather dry sense of humour as well. Because yes. um, I guess I get him to you know, talk in the first person, so we get right inside his brain and... He has. He is quite funny, actually. One of the things I, I like about him is he's, he's very dry and he's very funny. And so it does it does help every now and again just to have that little lightness in the books. Not everything is serious and dark. There you are. What? Why everyone uses Oxford? We can just picture it in our minds. Indeed, indeed. So I will. I've I've got to say I have I have chosen a Morse. I've chosen a Morse book. So I'll be talking about that later on. But first, you're recommending a historical novel for us. I am indeed. I am indeed. And I've chosen um, Towers in the Mist, which happens to be one of three cathedral city novels written by Elizabeth Gooch. Uh, and all, incidentally, all the three cities um, were significant in her, in Elizabeth's own life. Now, Towers in the Mist is set in Oxford during the reign of Elizabeth I. And it is described by some as an ideal uh, young adults uh, novel, though perhaps in more modern parts. It might be better described as as more inclusive because the novel is an adult story, but it but with teenagers at its very centre. 
Now, the story involves the family of the Reverend Gervais Lee, who happens to be a canon and dignitary of Christ Church and is a noted scholar of, of, of his day and his young, vibrant family. And they're adjusting to life after the death of their mother. Um, though the household is run by the nominal matriarch, a bedridden great aunt Grace, the task of uh, being surrogate mother falls to Joyce, um, who's the eldest daughter. She um, raises her twin sisters, Meg and Joan, and baby brother Dickon. Now, the, the the book opens up its May Day, and with it, it brings all the excitement, noise, and activity uh, that such an important um, day should. And uh, it is with the uh, usual excitement that Faithful, uh, a poor but aspiring scholar, faces the day having travelled from London in the company of gypsies. Um, for Oxford holds all the dreams which Faithful hopes will be turned into reality. And we have a little bit of a reading here. Chapter One, May Day. The first grey of dawn stole mysteriously into a dark world, so gradually that it did not seem as though day banished night. It seemed rather that night itself was slowly transfigured into something fresh and new. So shall I be changed, whispered a dirty, ragged boy, who lay on a pile of dried bracken, two books beneath his head for a pillow, within a gypsy tent and he sat up and grinned broadly at the queer grey twilight that stood like a friend in the narrow doorway. He had been awake for an hour or more, waiting to welcome the day, and now it had come upon him unawares, stealing into the world as though it were something quite trivial instead of the most important thing that had ever happened to him. He got up and went to it, tucking his two books under his arm and picking his way cautiously over the recumbent forms of the six children and five dogs who had been his bedfellows through the night. And a wild, wet night it had been, the last of the stormy nights that usher in the spring, or he would never have exchanged a sweet-smelling and wholesome ditch for the vile stench of the suffocating tent. To come out of it into the new day was like plunging head over heels into a clear bath of ice-cold water. It had been dark when the gypsies arrived at their camping place the night before, and the boy had seen nothing of it but the smooth trunks of the beeches lit by the glow of their fire, and the javelins of rain that spun by in the night beyond the shelter of the trees. The wind had been wild and high, and there had been a tumult in the branches over their heads, like the tumult of the sea. It was winter's death agony, and the boy had trembled as he lay listening to it, suddenly afraid of the world in which he found himself, and the life that lay before him. Hearing rumours of pain and grief in the drip of the rain from sodden trees and a prophesying of disaster in the clamour of the storm that had swept up so suddenly out of the darkness and filled the vault of the night with its power. He had fallen asleep still trembling and woken up in the pitch black of the hour before dawn to a stillness so deep and so perfect that even to breathe had seemed a desecration. It had seemed wrong to be alive in this depth of silence and darkness, and he had understood how at this hour, more than at any other, sick men yield themselves to death. And then, imperceptibly, it was death and winter that yielded, and life and the spring stood at the door and beckoned. 
Outside in the chill mist, he greeted again the things that belonged to the morning, the strong crooks of the young bracken pushing up out of the wet earth, the new crinkled leaves that stained the mist over his head to a faint green, and the sudden uprush of joy in his own heart. He was poor and ragged and dirty and hungry, but what did that matter? He was in Shotover Forest, within a few miles of Oxford, and the end of his pilgrimage, and in a short while he would see the city of his dreams, the city that was to change him from a disreputable young vagabond into the most renowned scholar of sixteenth-century England, or so he thought, and the gift of faith was his in full measure, together with a good brain and a certain amount of cheek. So perhaps he was right. But it's during the pageantry of uh, the May Day procession that Faithful meets, by chance, the Lee twins, Megan and Joan, and they take him home, where he joins the household of the Reverend Canon Lee and his family, and with the aid of the twins and Joyce, works towards making his dream a reality. Now, the story um, is woven in um, with a parade of the great and the good of Elizabethan Oxford, and that includes Thomas Bodley, the Earl of Leicester, who um, uh, founded the Bodleian Library, and the young Walter Raleigh and Philip Sidney, calming in the visit by the fairy Queen Elizabeth I herself. And into this rich mix uh, are colourful depictions of daily Elizabethan life, of riots, of squalor, of dirt and of beauty. I mean, it's a, it's really a coming-of-age story, um, charting the uncertain yeah. waters of love and aspiration and work. And uh, and like teenagers the world over, regardless of the age in which they live, they have a desire and always will have that desire to cock a snook at the conventions of the day, as, as, as we see with the children here. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, Oxford was one of three cathedral cities which was influential in Elizabeth Gooch's life. Um, and some commentators make mention that towers and the mist reflects something of the author's own life in that before the family moved to Oxford, they lived in Ely, which is one of the uh, settings for another of the yeah. books, The Dean's Watch, where Elizabeth, and she was really, really happy um, uh, in, in Ely. Her father, the Reverend Henry Leighton Googe, was vice principal of the theological college there. And then it was announced that the family was going to move to Oxford. Elizabeth was quite upset and loath to leave her much-loved city. Now, the move uh, had come about because her father had been appointed to the prestigious, important chair of Regis Professor of Divinity at the university, which it was said he'd accepted in part for the prestige the position would bestow on his own wife, um, Elizabeth's mother. However, Mrs. Googe, um had become quite ill, and so the burden of being the hostess oh, no. to the great and good. Yeah, yeah, so she so we carted off from Ely, and, and she, she was too ill, really, and so it fell on, on, on Elizabeth to act as hostess to a father to all of these the soirees of, of not only the social life of, of Oxford, but also the, the academic circle. Um, and there's, there's the sort of the parallel between Elizabeth and, and, and Elizabeth's life and, and, the, and the Lee family. Oh, that's so um, sad. Yeah. Because and, and I, I think you mentioned when we were talking about it that you didn't know much about Elizabeth. No, no. no. She's a pro- prolific writer um, and uh, she wrote over 40 books um, both novels and non-fiction between 1936 and 1974. And, and actually, um, latterly, she 
lived in uh, Rotherfield Peppard, which is not far from Henley on yeah, Thames. Yeah. yeah. And she died in uh, 1984. Now, um, the um, Towers in the Mist is, is still available and it's published by Coronet. And the current edition was reissued in 1993, but it's still available yeah, in that's, paperback. That's good. Yeah. When you were talking about uh, the Elizabethan... Uh, great and good, all standing out for Elizabeth I. Mm. It reminded me that we were doing something about Elizabeth I. And when she visited your home, it was, you know, this immense pleasure. And the courtiers would outdo themselves to have the best performances that happen. And so the poor Queen, you can just imagine, she spent all day on a horse or mm. on, a, on a coach getting somewhere. She <laughs> arrives, and I don't know about you, but whenever I want to go get to a hotel i want a cup of tea possibly to use the bathroom yeah. <laughs> but the poor queen elizabeth she's got to sit on this horse and then be greeted by some performances that could last two to three hours with people sort of reciting and singing and dancing and doing all these things you would just be so annoyed wouldn't you <laughs> I felt so sorry for Elizabeth I sort of arriving. All she wants to do is kick her shoes off. Yeah, kick her shoes off, have a cup of tea and a slice of cake. And... But instead, somebody's got the whole of the community doing some play or other. Prancing around. Exactly. <laughs> anyway. Oh, poor old Betty. <laughs> so it was lovely listening to Cara before. She's such a yes, lovely author. She, she was sort of saying how so her D.I. D.I. Adam Forley uh, riffs off Moors. Because, of course, no chat about books set in Oxford. You, you can't miss Morse out. And no, there's fabulous books by Colin Dexter. So I've just picked the very first one. I've read them all. They're all brilliant. So I've picked the very first one, which is The Last Bus to Woodstock. And it was written because uh, Dexter was in Wales, in North Wales, Julian, mm -hmm. um, on holiday with his wife and children. And needless to say, it was raining. Yeah. <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> um, Wales, not always raining, is uh, something Jasper Ford would say in his yes. adverts, in his books. <laughs> anyway, so um, Colin Dexter, really bored, he reads the two detective novels that are in the uh, bed and breakfast where they're staying, the holiday cottage. And he decides that he can do better. Um, and he'd actually been looking for some an alternative career because he had really bad hearing. And he was, originally he was a classics teacher. Ah. And he always used to describe himself as a teacher, a teacher and a writer. Mm. Um, but anyway, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't do the job of a classics teacher because his hearing was so bad. And the children took advantage of that I think mm. anyway so he decided that he would try and write a book and with the benefit of that sort of medieval and suburban Oxford as a setting um, he wrote last but bus to Woodstock and then Colin Dexter suggested that he would never have become a writer if he'd lived in Rotherham I don't quite know <laughs> what Rotherham has ever done to him but there you are anyway he's written um, 12 more Morse books and awarded four prestigious Dagger Awards from the Crime Writers Association so two Silver Dagger Awards for Service of the Dead and the Dead of Jericho and two Gold Dagger Awards for The Wenches Dead and The Way Through the Woods so I thought we could just listen to the very beginning of Last Book, a uh, Last Bus to Woodstock. Let's wait just a bit longer, please, said the girl in dark blue trousers and the light summer coat. I'm sure there'll be one due pretty soon. She wasn't quite sure, though, 
And for the third time, she turned to study the timetable affixed in its rectangular frame to first aid five. But her mind had never journeyed with any confidence in the world of columns and figures. The girl, standing beside her, transferred her weight impatiently from one foot to the other and said, I don't know about you. Just a minute, just a minute. She focused yet again on the relevant columns. Four, four A, not after 1800 hours. Four E, four X, Saturdays only. Today was Wednesday, that meant. Look, sweetheart, you please yourself, I'm going to hit you. Sylvia's habit of omitting all final teas seemed irritatingly slack. Come on, we'll get a lift in no time, you see. That's what all these fellas are looking for, girls' skirt. And in truth, there appeared no reason whatsoever to question Sylvia's brisk optimism. No accommodating motorist could fail to be impressed by her minimal skirting and the lovely invitation of the legs below. For a brief while, the two girls stood silently in uneasy, static truth. A middle-aged woman was strolling towards them. She came to a halt a few yards away from the girls and put down her shopping bag. Excuse me, said the first girl. Do you know when the next bus is? There should be one in a few moments, love. She peered again into the grey distance. Does it go to Woodstock? No, I don't think so. It's just for yarns and it goes to the village and then turns round. Oh, She stepped out towards the middle of the road, craned her neck and stepped back as a little convoy of cars approached. No bus was in sight and she felt anxious. We'll be all right, said Sylvia, a note of impatience in her voice. You say we'll be having a giggle about it in the morning. Another car and another. Then again the stillness of the warm autumn evening. Well, you can stay if you like, I'm off. Her companion watched as Sylvia made her way towards the Woodstock roundabout, about 200 yards up the road. And then she decided, Sylvia, wait! And holding one gloved hand to the collar of her lightweight summer coat, she ran with awkward, splayed-footed gait in pursuit. The middle-aged woman kept her watch at first age five. But Mrs Mabel Jarman was not to wait for long. Soon she would be home, and as she was to remember later on, she could describe Sylvia fairly well, her long blonde hair, her careless and provocative sensuality. Of the other girl, she could recall little. A light coat, dark slacks, what colour though? Hair, lightish brown. Please try as hard as you can, Mrs Jarman. It's absolutely vital for us that you remember as much as you can. She noticed a few cars and a heavy, bouncing, articulated lorry, burdened with an improbably large number of wheelless car bodies. Men, men with no other passengers, she would try so hard to recall. Yes, there had been men, she was sure of that. Several had passed her by. At ten minutes to seven, an oblong pinkish blur gradually assumed its firm delineation. She picked up her bag as the Red Corporation bus slowly threaded its way along the stops in the grey mid-distance. She squinted to see it more clearly. Woodstock. Oh dear. She'd been wrong then when that nicely spoken young girl had asked about the next bus. Still, never mind. They hadn't gone far. They would either get a lift or see the bus and manage to get to the next stop. How long have they been gone, Mrs Jorman? She stood back a little from the bus stop and the Woodstock driver gratefully passed her by. Almost as soon as the bus was out of sight, she saw another one, only a few hundred yards behind, 
This must be hers. The double-decker drew into the stop as Mrs Jarman raised her hand. At two minutes past seven, she was home. She cooked herself a generous supper, washed up and turned on the television. At ten o'clock, she watched the main items on the news, switched off and went to bed. At 10.30, she was sound asleep. It was at 10.30pm too that a young girl was found lying in a Woodstock courtyard. She'd been brutally murdered. And it was Sylvia that was murdered. Uh, That flouncy, confident youngster who was keen to find a lift. And suspicion falls on various characters. And it's solid detective work, but it keeps coming up with dead ends. So the solution requires something a little more imaginative. And that, of course, is Morse and what he's good at. So, of course, he's the curmudgeonly but entertaining detective. He's the beer, crossword and Wagner-loving detective who drives a vintage Jaguar around Oxford, solves murders by deep thinking and often after chance remarks made by his sidekick, Sergeant Lewis. (laughs) Now, Colin Dexter's last book was A Remorseful Day. And in it, he killed off Morse. But of course, Morse lives on on television land. There have been very successful television series with 33 episodes Mm. starring John Thor as Morse and Kevin Waitley as Lewis. And uh, Colin Dexter, of course, playing various cameos. And it's always a favourite of mine to, to, to find to spot, spot, yeah. spot Colin Dexter in yeah. the uh, in the programme. And uh, Dexter wrote the screenplays for many of his, uh, many of the, the film scripts. Um, and after John Thor's death, lovingly, I think, Dexter stipulated that no other actor should reprise the role, which why, of course, we have Lewis and then the prequel uh-huh. Endeavour. So mm. we never actually actually play Thorpe Moores properly. And I think it's great that Mm. John Thor's daughter, Abigail Thor, is uh, one of the um, actors in Endeavour. She plays the journalist Dorothea Brazil. Ah, uh, which nice. I think I think is a lovely take. Mm, nice. And also, I thought it was fun that Colin Dexter chose the name for Moors uh, from a crossword competition. Um, Colin Dexter himself was a great uh, crossword cruciverbalist. Is the word. That's the word. For a crossword mm. lover. Anyway, he was a great, great cruciverbalist. And he noticed that there were a couple of people who used to re- regularly win. One was Sir Jeremy Moores and the other one was a Mrs. B. Lewis. Ah, and right. uh, when asked whether he wrote for a readership or he wrote for himself, uh, Colin Dexter replied that he wrote for his old English teacher, Mr. Sharp. And he would write a page and then ask himself, would Mr. Sharp like that? And his aim was to feel that Mr. Sharp would give him at least eight out of ten. Oh, oh, that's good. Lovely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, perfect to, to pitch that and sort of somebody over your shoulder write this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, my second book, and um, we, we, we're keeping in the field of crime, and as we've mentioned, Dorothy Alsayers earlier, uh, having um, uh, been a guest of The Inklings, um, I've chosen Gordy Knight, uh, which was published in 1935. And it's actually the 10th appearance um, of uh, Dorothy Sayers, amateur sleuth Lord Peter Whimsey, and the third to include. Harriet Vane. Mm-hmm. Um, now, an invitation to attend the annual Gordy Night Dinner by the Dons of Harriet's Old College in Oxford, the All Women Shrewsbury College, um, leaves Harriet a bit 
uh, in a bit of trepidation because of her notoriety. She had been accused and stood trial for murder in Strong Poison, uh, one of the earlier novels. Now, setting aside her anxiety, Harriet travels to Oxford and on arrival finds to a surprise and delight a very warm welcome by the Dons. However, not long after arrival, there's a, a chilling event start to unfold and Harriet finds an offensive drawing um, with a, a po- poison pen message waiting for in her room, referring to her as the dirty murderess. Uh, well, not, after that, she, she she returns to London, but not, not long after, the Dean of Shrewsbury um, writes to Harriet and uh, telling her of an outbreak of vandalism in the college, as well as anonymous nasty letters. And the Dean begs Harriet to come back to Oxford to investigate um, in it confidentially, so to avoid a public scandal and any damage that it might cause to the reputation of the college. Harriet reluctantly agrees, and she returns to, to Shrewsbury College, um, spending some months in residence and using the research of Sheridan Lefano as her cover. And in addition, she helps one of the Dons with, with a book that the Don's writing. Now, Harriet wrestles with the case as, as she narrows the search for the perpetrator down to the senior common room, Don's. And that's all because of um, a Latin quotation from the Aeneid that was used in the first poison pen letter. Now, more nasty messages um, uh, start to appear along with obscene graffiti um, and the uh, crafting of vile effigies and, in fact, destruction of scholarly proofs. And, and Harriet decides that she really needs some assistance, so she calls upon her chum, um, Lord Peter Whimsey. And in doing so, Harriet then oblige, uh, is obliged to examine her ambivalent feelings for Peter, and she thinks about love and marriage and um, her attraction to the academic world. Um, and is it um, an emotional and intellectual refuge? Now, events lead to a crisis which includes an attempt to drive a vulnerable student to suicide and a physical assault on Harriet, which almost kills her. But at last, the perpetrator is a mask, and it is... I'm sorry. Uh, you'll simply have to read the book uh, to find out for yourself. And in doing so, find out what Lord Peter Whimsey thinks of Harriet. Now, if you're wondering um, or wondering about Gordy, it's actually a university or college feast, which is usually held for the alumni of the college. Now, in addition to Oxford University, Durham University St. Chad's College holds a, a Gordy night dinner. And also the University of Reading's Wantage Hall of Residence also holds an annual Freshers um, Gordy, which is a legacy. And this is really interesting because I didn't, didn't know this at all. When, when the University of Reading was an extension college of Christchurch, in Oxford. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. so it's so it's actually, a, a, in a way, also a, a, one of the old universities. Now, it's still available, Gordy and I still available in paperback, and it's published by Hodder Paperbacks. Um, they were all originally published by New English Library, which was an imprint that Hodder did buy, so you can go out and buy, and in fact, you can buy all of the Lord Peter Whimsey novels. Brilliant. Yes, I think the uh, Lord Peter Whimsey novels are fabulous. Because it, it explores his... Um, PST because of um, his time during World War One. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Um, so very quickly, because we're really how does time fly? I so know quickly? it's shocking. I'm just going to mention his Dark Materials by Philip yes. Pullman because oh, I yes, just must. think yes. it's a brilliant book. Mm. It's a best-selling trilogy, and um, the fantasy books take part 
in a parallel universe, but they've earned the right, I feel, to be classed as Oxford fiction mm. because of the very first book, Northern Lights, which is set very yes. much in, uh, in an alternative Oxford, um, which, uh, where we follow Lyra, a girl who's been brought up in Jordan College, obviously a fictitious um, college. Um, and anyway, there's a mysterious group of individuals who are kidnapping children and a particle called dust, which is being researched at the college. And it's quite a complicated, sophisticated book, but it is a children's book. And I think it's absolutely fabulous. And it sort of came out at the same time as Harry Potter. And I was always oh. interested to see that it was Harry Potter that made all the the sales. And Philip Pullman, mm. obviously hugely successful, amazing novelist. And it did brilliantly, but just not. Obviously, mm. nothing did as brilliantly as Harry Potter did it, but yeah. um, I just felt it deserved more. Uh, but of course, it's been turned into film mm-hmm. it's been t- with Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. In fact, I saw yeah. that being filmed in Oxford. Oh, did you? Yeah, really mm. great. Uh, I have did. actually, I have actually seen. It's really good. Um, oh, it okay. really is very, very dramatic picture yeah and then there's a video game and mm-hmm. also there's a tv series with uh, james yes McAvoy. that's right yes yeah. yeah so pullman i was saying brilliant uh, novelist so he won the carnegie medal from the library association for this book and then for the 70th anniversary of the medal he was named one of the top 10 winning works and then they had to decide from a public vote who was going to be the Carnegie of Carnegie's and of course it was Northern Lights. That ah, that. excellent, congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the London Book Fair is coming up. Yes, it is. Um, after a gap of two years, which um, which was uh, forced on it by um, COVID. So uh, it is going ahead um, and it'll be in April, uh, starts on um, Tuesday, uh, 5th of April. Will you be going uh, along? I will be going, yes. Um, I'll be going to, to see my uh, client publishers. I don't think there'll be many um, customers of mine coming over from, um, from the Far East, um, partly whilst arrival into the uk will be it shouldn't be a problem I, I, a lot of countries in in asia still have um difficult um conditions to be met even even residents leaving countries i mean i think in malaysia i was told by one customer they have to isolate for 10 days before they leave oh, on right. overseas trip and and then repeat on their way back so yeah. that's obviously going to crimp um some enthusiasm for travel um so i think it's going to be a bit of a muted fair i, I would imagine but i think there'll be i think there'll be a lot of excitement because i think just people publishers just want to get so they can start chatting you know yes. to their to their um to their reps and and, and and other people i think that's basically what it's going to be really it's so just, all the main publishers are there are they yeah, yes yes there are um in fact actually I, I have heard stories that some some publishers have even still not quite sure if they've got stands so i don't know whether there's been so many wanting to come back it it could be that but it also it it might be that the the fair organizers might have actually um uh, not using all of the uh, all of the hall um uh, because they have one at the at the very far behind uh the main great hall and that might not be i don't know i i haven't seen the plan but it could be a shortage only because they're anticipating fewer exhibitors but who knows um 
It's good. It sounds as though life's getting back to normal. Yes, and and that's the important thing. I think it 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 is that getting back to normal, so people can it, you know sit down and chat and talk about the book, see the books. Um, you know, it's a lively atmosphere, and and then of course what's the beauty of it now because it's April, the the the, the clocks have moved forward, so it's a lighter lighter in the day, and in the great hall, it's a glass roof, so the sun will come through or the daylight, so yes. it makes it a much more pleasant experience. London in the spring was always lovely yes is always always lovely well it is always lovely yes it is yes that sounds great right so other books that we've been recommending today are the anatomy of a nation a history of british identity in 50 documents by dominic selwood published by constable and i think that's the one i'll be buying this week right yes and and then of course we have what i wish people knew about dementia by wendy mitchell which is published by bloomsbury we've got the seven husbands of evelyn hugh Go by Taylor Jenkins Reid, and that's published by Simon and Schuster. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have Thomas Halliday's Other Lands, A World in the Making, published by Alan Lane. The Locked Room by Ellie Griffiths, published by Quirkus. And then we have The Last Bus to Woodstock, which was published in 1975, um, uh, written by Colin Dexter and published by Pan Macmillan and still available, of course. Yes, of course. We've got The Whole Truth by Cara Hunter, published by Penguin. I think that's probably going to be my choice. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah because it's Oxford also, but, but, but Cara, so she sounds such a lovely oh, lady. Oh, she is, yeah. Yeah. And one that uh, that I, I mentioned was Towers in the Mist by Elizabeth Googe. Um, that's published by Hodron Stoughton. And Gordy Knight by Dorothy L. Sayers, published by Hodder Paperbacks. And last but not least, Breath by James Nestor, published by Penguin Life. Yes. So we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 on River Radio. And we're also repeated on Saturday. Yes, excited. Very yes. exciting, between two and three. So and, it's two and three Saturdays. Yeah, right. and Good. don't forget, if you're not able to join us live for any of our programmes, then you can listen again directly from the website and Turning Pages is available as a podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. In a world 